0: Hello, I'm Allison Thorpe, and this is God Talk, recorded and produced in the bluegrass state of Kentucky, the home of horses, hills, hiking, hillbillies, big trucks, wildcat basketball, and Daniel Boone, the state where guns are honored and shoes are optional. This is the show where science, faith, and culture are discussed openly. Welcome to God Talk, a show where a rocket scientist and a medical doctor, who is also my pastor, talk about science and religion. I'm your host. Doug Thorpe and with me as always is my co-host Dr. Andy Wyatt. Today on God Talk we welcome our guest Mr. Perry Marshall who is going to discuss his book The Evolution 2.0. So let's get
1: started. Dr. Andy welcome to the show. Hey Doug today we have another guest Perry Marshall who's going to carry on our discussion about origin of life, evolution process of the elegance of DNA and the processes involved in fixing DNA, and Perry has come up with uh, an interesting book that has a different contemporary look at at evolution and creation. And I think that, you know, the important point to make here is that so many times people who are Christians will say, well, we can't believe in evolution because Darwinian, neo-Darwinian synthesis often implies that there is no God, there's no need for God, life just came about, it's all an accident, it evolved, and there's no design in it. Some people have that opinion of evolution. Other people think you've got to develop intelligent design theories that go around evolution. Well, Perry has tried to come up with a way of bringing together or bridging evolution. He's not denying evolution as a process. But he's not letting. He's not. He doesn't believe it's a standalone process. He believes that it's a process that's very elegant and it has code in it and information, and that the DNA molecule and the processes that go on in the cell, albeit might be involved in evolution. But he doesn't think it was accidental. He's he's seeing design and information theory help to make bring evolution together with God. So it's, that's really a perfect right. show. Well, you know why I'm excited,
0: don't you? I'm not sure. Well, because you've had nothing but theologists <laughs> and uh, biologists, so we've finally got an engineer that I can communicate with here, all right? So, yeah, the, he uh, is electric. an electrical
1: engineer, <laughs> well, fantastic. It or not. But a, he's studying biology. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he's an electrical engineer like you, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we we have a lot of theologians. We have a lot of philosophers. We have some, we've had some biochemists, we've had some MDs, right? (laughs) Haven't had a lot of engineers on. Oh, this. Well, I think what's cool about this, Doug, I mean, what's your, just off the cuff, I mean, what do you think about the idea that computer programs, which you work with, you know, you got your master's degree, even in an area where you looked at error disclosure. Right, in communications, yes. Okay, so, you know, what do you think about the idea that language, and, and coded information in computers is analogous in some way or like DNA. Well, I have
0: studied a little bit of DNA, and I came up to the conclusion that you're looking at, you know, it's not ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. You've got four. You right. know, it's like you one zero, negative one, negative zero, mm-hmm. right? So you've got, it's it's not a yeah. binary code, but it's very close.
1: It's like, my sure. golly, that's a code if I've ever seen one. I'm glad you see it that way. I, I really think it is, too. Um, and so here, the, the battle is going to be this on today's show as people listen to it. First of all, it may be a little long show, and it may be a little technical, so hang in there. We're going to try to explain things. But the battle will be to say, all right, is what Perry Marshall is talking about here really designed and structural processes that are built into the cell that are elegant, or is it just random? That's going to be the argument. I mean, it's going to be between randomness and elegant processes. So I think it'll really be a good show, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking to Perry. But first, this is God Talk. Your partner while you commute to work or a cure for your insomnia. It'll either keep you up all night, you'll forget about sleeping, or you're just going to sleep like a baby. And this is God Talk. Brain candy for the
0: thinking Christian. A bad day for the atheist or a provocative question for the seeker.
1: Let's get all right, let's get Perry on the line. All right, so Doug, today we have Perry with us uh, who is going to talk to us about um, really the origin of life and evolution. Perry Marshall is an engineer, so he's right down your alley, All right. Doug, and we finally right. have an electrical engineer here. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, hello, Perry. Hello
2: great to talk to you guys today
1: we're glad to have you so why don't we just start out perry by uh, having you tell the audience a little bit about your background and your education and how an electrical engineer got interested in evolution and of course your book is evolution 2.0 and we're going to try to look at this origin life question from a programming standpoint an engineering standpoint informatics and i think it's a great way to go all right so we'll start there
2: I was uh, part of a group for a few years at Willow Creek Community Church, which I imagine some of your listeners would be familiar, very large church in Chicago. And, um, yeah. you know, we would do apologetics programs and things like that. And I remember we, we had a few different programs where we would address, um, you know, the origins and evolution kind of questions. And at the time... I wasn't terribly knowledgeable about about that, but I remember making a comment uh in a meeting once w- that I'm kind of proud of in retrospect where I said, Well, I don't think the issue is creation versus evolution. I think the issue is naturalism versus design, yeah, and you know i think I think that really is the case and and so where things got interesting was. Uh, My younger brother graduated from seminary and got a master's degree Hmm. and moved to China as a missionary, and then probably about two years into it, he started having a lot of questions about a lot of things, and um, within a couple years after that, he was almost an atheist, and uh, he left China and went back home. And this whole time that he was questioning his faith, he was kind of dragging me along with him. And I had done a ton of apologetics kind of stuff, and I thought he'd seen everything. In fact, I would say I'd even done more of that kind of stuff than most people that call themselves, you know, apologetics aficionados, but... Mm-hmm. You've never really gotten the full bazooka until you've gotten it from somebody who has a master's degree from a conservative seminary and can read Hebrew and Greek.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: Okay? Yeah. And the fact is, is seminaries teach people how to think. That's right. Yep. And, and, and you will find that pastors and people with those kind of educations are among the most well-read people that you'll ever meet even though our culture doesn't tend to recognize that yeah and so um you know you you get the drift
1: yeah and you know and i am a pastor as well as a, as, a, as a physician and i have a seminary degree so i'm sitting here nodding my head yeah. to Doug, <laughs> so i read all the time and i
0: just got to butt in there that this show is would be perfect for your brother because if you have doubts if you have questions then you need to listen to the show Well, you. it
1: sounds like his, his brother's problems were in the faith science realm. It sounds like that's – was well, that where he was questioning, mainly scientific? I'd say
2: yeah. a third of his questions were there, and that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he he gets to this point, he's like, hey, wait a minute. Earth is not 6,000 years old. But, you know – <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um and and I'm like, well no, Brian, it's it's not. Um like I know that. But you have to appreciate how tightly wrapped the his whole theological package had been oh. up to that point. Okay, and um, you know, you kinda have to appreciate um you know, in my opinion, he was actually so he, at this point, he's in his late 20s or so, and he's actually really starting to fully think for himself for the
1: first time. I see. So and let me just cut yeah. in there a minute and say let's make the point that he was really coming at this, you're saying, from a very conservative literalism, very. literalism, biblical liberal, yep. literalism and a modernistic standpoint. And so that, of course, if you're starting from that perspective, it's very easy to tear down. That and lose your faith, and that's exactly why we try to refute those claims about yes. extreme, you know, rigidity in dogma. Yeah, and, and we see that. We see that here. Oh, we see it all the time. We deal with it. But, you know, some people, Perry, are able to just kind of live with that, and they don't ever right. question it. <laughs> and, you know, we see right. that, And but yet if you're a thinker or you're out there seeing evil in the world and questioning that, and then you start questioning things like the age of the earth, and you don't have any tools to really understand that yeah so anyway i just wanted to throw that in that's that's where he was coming from it sounds like
2: yes exactly exactly and it was so brittle that Mm -hmm. it just kind of blew apart and and now i was not uh, embracing this like hard literalism and i you know like i i read scripture and i i see things on lots of different levels you know and and and, and in fact, I at one of my seeker small groups at Willow Creek. We started in Genesis one, two, and three. At one point, we spent several weeks, and we we like sifted through it with a fine tooth comb. And when we started, um, th- and this is quite a long time ago, by the way, um, and, and uh, I hadn't really gone down this rabbit hole very far. But I just said, I said, you know, for the sake of this discussion. I'm not really concerned whether you take this as literal or figurative. We're just going to go down into the story and see what it says. And probably at least half of them were not inclined to take it literally. But what happened was, you know, three or four weeks in, they're up to their eyeballs in the story and like, oh, my goodness, this story is so rich. And it says so much that it almost doesn't matter.
1: Well, yeah, that's right. If you can see it that way, I mean it tells us right. who humanity, you know, who we are, what we're about, what the problems in the world are, and about yeah. our worldview and that's that's what we really need to get above and see, but so many people get stuck in the little details and and it it's a big problem, yeah so
2: but that that wasn't that wasn't where. I suddenly found an issue what what I found an issue you know Brian was asking all kinds of questions about all kinds of things and it, it was coming at me faster than I could process but I felt intellectually obligated to try to keep up and hmm. and so and, and so he's pulling me along it's it's agitating me it's making me uncomfortable and at one point, I find myself sort of grabbing for a ledge, and I go, "Hey, wait a minute! Now, now, l- look at the hand at the end of your arm. Like, you, this is one marvelous piece of engineering, and I can appreciate this because I've designed stuff. And it's like, the, the, tr- you know, there's always trade-offs and there's always compromises, but a great engineer just finds a really." elegant way to kind of dovetail them all together. So you don't really see them, and, and like, Mm. man, this is amazing. Right. And he goes, um, hold on a second. You know, (laughs) that could be the result of, you know, random accidents over millions of years. And he, he pushes back with a standard Darwinian explanation. And I didn't necessarily agree with them. However, I knew that most biologists would probably more likely agree with him than me. Right. And I knew I didn't really know. I knew how counterintuitive some things in science are. Um, I knew that biologists are not stupid and like, I don't know. And I said, I'm going to get to the bottom of this and I'm going to follow this wherever it takes me. And I just kind of leaped into the void and and I decided I'm I'm going to I'm going to get to it. And so
1: so that you know, was the catalyst. Uh, the catalyst was really your brother who lost his faith or was struggling with his faith and that really pushed you deep into this question of the origin of life. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And and I I didn't even know this until this happened, but I think I discovered that my deepest intuition about there's a God somewhere out there was my engineering sensibilities. It's like, you know, a, a universe like this would have to take some planning.
1: Yeah, I mean that's okay. really that's really true. That's what got me in the end was really the design that I saw in the human body and in chemistry and biochemistry. And I realized things can happen through chemical evolution and so forth. But the overall picture, and we've talked about many times on this show, just the fact that there is a universe to begin with right. that isn't just a mess of void, a void of just you know. randomness but you've actually got order in it you know and it came about
0: a universe that still exists that still exists that's right
1: and and exists with purpose it seems i mean it looks like it anyway it it's hard for me to ever be able to wrap my mind around you know that being just an accident just that much and then when you add in the development of humanity and consciousness and and the complexity and not only complexity, but specific complexity that we see in a course that we're going to talk about in a minute, the DNA. But, uh, you know, the information that's there comes from the mind. So those are the things that, that compelled me. But anyway, so so you're into this. And you're, you say you're jumping down the rabbit hole, and you jumped deep, let me say. Yeah. You, you really did. And uh, tell me, how long did you work on this, or how long have you been been moving in this direction?
2: Well, that— conversation happened almost 12 years ago. And, and, and the next thing that happened was, so I know how to go deep into a subject. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, I start, i start doing websites. I, I start, um, buying books like a banshee, like I'm spending 300 bucks a month on Amazon, just, you know, buying (laughs) stacks of books. And, uh, you know, one click is my best friend and, you know, and and then also scientific papers and, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, I quickly found several things. I found that if you're going to get any real facts, you have to get away from the invective and the mudslinging and you have to get down to actual scientific literature where people are speaking at a relatively low emotional uh, boiling, you know, point, sure, and and, sure. and and all of that, and I, and I was, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been thankful that I finished that engineering degree and became scientifically literate, so I could read the <laughs> equations and understand, you know. Sure. And so now I'm going into biology, which is pretty foreign, and I have to start learning a whole bunch of terms. I mean. And for a while, <laughs> I. <laughs> oh my goodness it's like like biology is the most complicated subject we there had this
1: conversation no. yeah yeah and we said before i gotta tell the audience you got three geeks here okay we're just going to be honest with you and so perry he, you know he's our friend but doug is always arguing with me about all this biology you know oh, i yeah. mean he's a math guy engineer yeah and, and so right we're laughing here i just yeah. want to let you know mechanical yeah. and electrical that's <laughs> yeah.
0: well I, yeah and
2: and it, it, it was very overwhelming. Yeah. And then on top of that, you have, you know, you have the left side and the right side, and they both say compelling things. And I would just find myself swinging back and forth and back and forth, which actually might be a good sign because I was at least paying attention to both sides. I mean, I decided very early on. It is not just good enough to know my own position and just, like, be certain that I'm right and then have my big long list of reasons that I got from the FAQ.
1: That's good. That's
2: good. Um, I have to understand both sides well enough to argue both sides.
1: Thank you. I like that. Uh, That is – that's why we, ha- we have you on the show, because, you know, we're not real interested in having people that have so many presuppositions and uh, such tight construction that you can't really have a uh, conversation with them. Our audience, we have a lot of agnostics and atheists that listen to the show, and they just won't they won't hear that. Right. So oh, yeah. And, yeah, and
2: there's a principle of, of being charitable to your opponent, which is, you know, I think a good – a good way to look at humanity is everybody believes what they believe and does what they do with some degree of good intention behind it. Sure. I mean, you know, even people that do really terrible things at least think they're trying to do something good (laughs) and you don't have any, you don't have any prayer of understanding them. Yeah. Unless you, grant them a little bit of grace and and try to see from their point of view. And I started to see, you know, if if common descent is true, if evolution as a general principle is true, that certainly harmonizes a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It means that, that tigers and cats and lions aren't just conveniently similar to each other. They actually are related.
3: Sure. Sure.
2: Okay, and that's useful. And in fact, our, and another thing, like if it's really true that all you need is random mutation and natural selection and and, and you get this gigantic continuous improvement machine that, that runs 24-7 in all of nature, if that's true, then that would be really amazing. Because I don't know about anything like that as an engineer. Nobody ever showed me how to have a 24-7 automatic continuous improvement machine where everything gets better and better. What I knew as an engineer was Murphy's Law, so maybe the biologist knows something I don't know. What is it? But I'm gonna find out. I And I know what it's like to get to the bottom of a subject. And I won't go into why, but you know, certain papers I worked on in school and certain projects I worked on, like I really did get to the bottom of how something works. And I could start with, you know, Newton's law and work out a big, huge, complex set of equations and understand exactly what's going on with something. Like, I know how to do this, and I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to find out, like, what's the core principle here of, you know, whether evolution is true or not. And so, but but I haven't touched the bottom of the swimming pool yet, and I knew I hadn't. And, and so I floated around, but it took a, it took a little while, but then one day I was reading about DNA and I was like, okay, I got to understand what DNA mutations are all about. And all of a sudden I started finding literature that discussed the data structure in DNA, the layers in the genetic code and communication theory. Okay. And I had never thought. Of that in this context before, but wait a minute. I wrote an Ethernet book in 2002. Now, by the way, I've done a lot of things in my career. So I graduated with an electrical engineering degree, I had a specialization in control systems and in communications, I did a whole bunch of stuff in acoustics in school. I got a job designing speakers. I designed the speakers in the 95 Ford Probe, the 95 Mm. Jeep Cherokee, the 96 Honda Civic, um, the Acura Vigor, um, and I had done all that kind of stuff. Then I had left, and I had gone into um, digital networking communications uh, uh, for factory automation, and uh, it was in that phase of my career that I wrote an Ethernet book. I wrote a bunch of articles on digital networking, and um, and now, for the last 15 years, I've been a marketing consultant. I wrote a book on Google advertising, a book on Facebook advertising, a book on applying the Pareto principle in marketing. So I've, I've done a lot of different things. And um, the Ethernet book was this giant epiphany. It was like a 10-second, like brain-on-fire moment, hey, wait a minute, all the rules of code that I wrote about in that Ethernet book apply to DNA. Hmm. I get it.
1: Now, I see. Now, Doug, I want to pull you in here as another engineer. yeah, He's talking about computer code right. and seeing that as an epiphany to uh, make an analogy to the DNA code. How do you see that, or what, what's your take on it?
0: Well, I know in a computer code like the one we're running to record this program that if you have one digit out that it would it would crash. You won't get any more, it would just stop right in the middle of uh, operating. Mm-hmm. So, yep. If you apply that to DNA now, I would think it's cool. I mean, most sometimes uh it would be good, you know, you will get a modification. Most of the time, we talked about this beforehand, it's going to be detrimental, and yeah. you would want to get rid of that cell in a hurry. Uh, or it's right, cancer. an injury. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cancer or right. something like that. So,
1: I mean, <laughs> isn't it curious?
0: Yeah, we have uh, mutations all the time sure. in cells that allow uh, genes to be passed on that are different than right. the mother or father's.
1: And some of them are not. Significant. I mean, you get uh, small mutations; they don't make any difference in the code necessarily. That well, can I mean, happen.
0: That's, that's how right. a, a wolf became a Datsun and mm-hmm. a great and a Saint Bernard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the well, same. Let's okay. Let's, back let's
2: actually peel that a little bit, okay? Because th- this parallel is really valuable, and there's there's some subtleties about it. So. If we say that genetics is like software, that's an analogy, right. okay? And there's some ways where it holds up, and there are other ways where it doesn't. Okay. If you say DNA is a code, that is not an analogy. It's, it is a code. It's a code in every sense of the word and it's a code and all for all the same reasons that morse code zip codes barcodes html c java all those things are codes now this is really important now first of all as we as you'll see as we go along in this conversation atheists like to say that it's not actually a code but right, it is
1: right and that's the and first problem. If you say problem, it's not a yeah. code,
2: we might as well erase the last sixty years of genetics and start over again, uh, because that's literally what they're doing. It is a code. Look it up. The way you know it's a code, it's got an encoding table, a decoding table. Here's here's the here's the table for transcription. Here's the table for translation. Mm-hmm. Here's the table for proteins. It's a code. Right. Absolutely. Well, okay.
0: We talked yeah. about this before that, you know, for it's almost ones and zeros, except for you got two letters. So it's a ones and zeros and negative one, negative zero. You got zeros.
1: A-C-T-G. You know, yeah. You got four, right. four letters, right? Yep. And so you've got, and, and let's be clear about this for a minute, because sometimes you'll get this pushback, and an atheistic biologist that I talk to all the time will say, well, you know, it's just... Uh, it's not really a code. Uh, you could have a, a totally different order. And, and I'm like, well, I don't think so. I mean, you, you know, that order <laughs> calls, when you've got a triplet, AAC, that calls for a specific amino acid. Right. Now, when you right. make a protein and you put a different amino acid in there, it changes a three-dimensional shape, and it doesn't function the same. We've always used sickle cell anemia as an easy example. Right. Well, And most, so, the,
0: and most animals on the whole earth are... Sixty percent the same a banana. Well, that's to... true.
1: There's a lot of similarities, and the, and people push back with junk DNA sometimes. But right. but we don't know all the ins and outs of junk DNA. So anyway, I just want to throw that out that to the audience. DNA, I, I do believe it's a code. I mean, as as a oh, doctor, as a scientist, I believe it absolutely. Yeah,
2: it's it's not even a matter of belief. It's a matter of definition. So yeah. here now, why is that useful? Because That means all the math of communication theory applies. All the principles of communication theory apply. Now, you guys, and and I liked that because now we're talking rigor.
3: Sure.
2: Okay? What I, what I, I, I quickly became very disturbed at the lack of rigor in popular evolution books and, frankly, a lot of papers. It was a lot of presuppositions that just right. got a free pass. Like, hang on, we have to apply some rigor here. Now, what Brian was saying to me, here's what he said to me in, in in the van in our very first argument, and it's really interesting because what he said actually gets to the core issue, and I didn't even know it. Hmm. He goes, Perry, let's say you got you got like millions of falcons. And you've got hundreds of millions of years. I'm like, okay, fine. He goes, so every now and then you have a copying error in the DNA. Most of the time it's going to be bad. Sometimes it's going to be good. Makes a better eye. He can hunt better. He outlives all the other falcons. That takes over the population. Natural selection um, cleans up the mess. And now you get better falcons. And he goes, isn't it inevitable that over time things would just get better and better and better. And I was like, well, intuitively, I don't think so. But maybe you're right. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I have to find out. Is he right? I don't know. That is the issue. Yeah. Now, you guys were talking a few minutes ago about, you know, sometimes there's mutations, sometimes they're neutral. Uh, A lot of times they're bad. Sometimes they're good. Okay, here's the truth about that. And this is really important. This is central to the whole thing. If, if, if we're talking regular computer code, any file on the internet, any file format, anything you want to come up with, XML, um, XLS, um, HTML, I don't care what you got. Copying errors, even little ones almost always are lethal. Okay like ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of the time, it's bad. And it goes downhill really fast. And what people don't appreciate is how much error correction there is in every single device. It's in your Word program. It's in your Excel program it's in your TCP IP stack, it's in the computer hardware, it's in the router, it's in the modem, hmm. it's in your phone, and I mean layers and layers. Like when you send an email, there may be somewhere between 10 and 20 different layers of error correction and error checking that go on to make sure that the message arrives exactly identical the way you sent it.
1: Is that right? I did not uh, know. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
2: There is an extraordinary level of checking, huh. and and so like all like you're downloading web pages from the internet, you're, um, huh. it comes through perfect. And a lot of times, like when a web page hangs or something like that, it's because there was a tiny little error somewhere.
0: I did not know that. You send packets of. Just so the audience know. You send packets of little information across the network, and it, he's right. It gets checked all the way throughout. The, that's part of my, my Part of, my master's part of what you know. Yeah, okay. that's my master's. Well, see, I, didn't, I, didn't, I
1: did not know that. That's yeah. interesting. Data,
2: okay. yes. Data is extraordinarily fragile. Okay. And all you have to do is start messing with it and not have error checking, and you'll see that. Hmm. And, like, every now and then, like, the hard driver crash or – or the computer crashes while you're writing a Word document, and then you open it up, and it's full of gibberish, hmm. and you can't recover it, Bro. right? Or, yeah. or the hard drive crashes, and half of your files are ruined, and they can't recover them. Sure, It doesn't take much. Okay. In fact, literally, a, a couple of bits here and there sometimes is all it takes.
3: That's
2: now, different. I knew this. It's extremely fragile. Wow. And I was like, okay data is fragile. People don't even know, but I know. It's very fragile. So how did we get um, from, you know, the first bacteria all the way to us, if you got three billion years, how did you get that preserved? Well, here's why. First of all, the genetic code itself, the basic code that you look up on any table in a biology book is two thirds redundant? Okay. Okay.
1: Right. Right. Three
2: three codons map to one amino acid, mm-hmm. and that code is optimized to minimize the effect of the most common kinds of errors. Yeah. Okay. There
1: is a lot of redundancy. That's true. Yeah. There's, a There's a lot of map. redundancy,
2: mm-hmm. and all communication systems have redundancy. Okay. And I knew you would have to have this in DNA, so where is it? Well, first of all, it's built into the code, and it's, it's highly optimal. It's optimal to a one-in-a-million ratio. Like, of all the other schemes, it's, it's one-in-a-million in terms of how optimum it is. Hmm. Okay? But secondly, there's a whole nother layer, and this is where it got interesting. Okay. Cells have error detection, error correction, and proofreading systems that are very sophisticated, and they all have them. And the reason that life is still here is that error correction has been going on for three billion years. Okay. And these systems are incredibly sophisticated. The latest Nobel Prize Chemistry, 2015, awarded to three different guys, is all about error correction, error detection, and proofreading. And it it is very tightly related to
1: disease, genetic disease, and and cancer research. That's incredible. So you're talking – yeah, you're talking about – layered now for the audience, multiple layers of error detection and correction of the DNA to prevent what we talked about, the hardware crashing, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And if you go to the Nobel Prize website, they have a really nice PDF document where they explain, basically in plain English, these three levels of correction. And so every time a cell replicates, there's one set of checks, and then there's another set, and there's another set. And by the time these three layers of error correction are done, you, ha- you have less than one copying error per billion letters.
0: Wow. Uh, now, let me jump in there real quick and, and ask about this. In communication electronics, you, have, uh, you put the packet of data through a screen and you'll end up with a totally different word. And that is what they check. When it gets to the end, they'll say, okay, this is the, you know, you'll go through the screen again. and says, okay. Does that word match this word? If it does, mm-hmm. then it's correct. And you send the, da- the packet of the data on. How, how does that, uh, is anything like DNA checking?
2: Um, it appears to be, um, There are a few papers that talk about checksums. One of them is by a friend of mine. His name is Jean Claude Perez. And he wrote a paper. It's called, I'm not going to get this quite right, but it's called, I think, um, Double Stranded DNA is Fractal and Controlled by the Golden Ratio 1.618, and it's from 2010. And it's in Interdisciplinary Sciences, is the journal. Mm-hmm. And what he, what he showed is that if you take certain kinds of DNA and you count codons, there is a pattern of how, how, um, how often those codons appear. And so some codons are much more common than others. Okay. So it would be analogous to, in English, E happens almost 13% of the time.
3: Okay, right.
2: Z happens 0.1% of the time. <laughs> yeah, okay. And you can, it's so consistent that a, a letter counting program could tell whether you're reading German or English or Dutch just by counting letters, and it would usually be right.
1: Huh. Okay. So okay. we got that in the English language too. Yeah.
2: Right. So we have that in English. Mm-hmm. Well, we also have that in DNA. Except in DNA, like in English, it's kind of haphazard, as you can imagine. Yeah. Right. In DNA, it follows a stair-step pattern that is known in fractal geometry as the fractal folding curve. Hmm. Okay. And 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 so have a a blog post called The Mathematics of DNA at CosmicFingerprints.com, and if you go look at it, it shows you this Sudoku matrix pattern where he found symmetries. I don't know how he figured this out. It's it's friggin' amazing. But this guy's a retired IBM researcher, and he spends all day in front of his computers crunching numbers on genomes that he downloads from all these sites. (laughs) <laughs> and he's retired and this is what he likes to do. And what he found <laughs> oh was my. that if you if you group certain codons together, they add up to certain frequencies and they create these symmetries. And he believes that this um this is a checksum okay. that cells use to know um whether things have been copied correctly.
3: Hmm.
2: Now but it gets more interesting. And here's here's where it gets really interesting. The error, the same machinery that corrects errors also rewrites the code when the organism is under stress. Okay. Now, and this is huge. A protozoan, which is like, A big, it's like a big uh, granddaddy bacteria. Mm
1: -hmm. Single-celled organism, yeah. All
2: right. A protozoan under stress, there's certain species of ciliated protozoa. When they're under stress or starving, they will cut their DNA into 100,000 pieces and rearrange them and change their physiology in order to attempt to adapt to the threatening environment, like to digest something that it couldn't digest or to survive on less food, okay. Huh. And and Barbara McClintock um, was really the first person to start to figure this out. And Barbara McClintock, in my opinion, is a greater scientist than Darwin. And that's true, even if you think Darwin was like the greatest guy ever. Mm-hmm. And I know some people listening sure. probably hate the guy, but yeah. but but either way. Barbara McClintock was an even greater scientist because here's what she did. So up so we're talking 1940s here. Up to that point, they 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 were just starting to come up with a modern synthesis, which is, you know, modern genetics plus random mutations of DNA plus natural selection equals evolution and they're working all this stuff out and they're already kind of going with their presuppositions, what McClintock did was she started hacking chromosomes with mild doses of radiation. Hmm. Now, a lot of people were doing stuff like this, but she did it different. And what she did was she got a corn plant in a situation where because of a broken chromosome it couldn't reproduce.
1: Okay and, now for the audience what we're saying is the radiation injured caused a mutation in the DNA code. Yes. such in a in a point at a point in the DNA that prevented it from replicating i guess what you're saying. So exactly. it was at a, at a precise place or I don't know if she meant to hit it there but if she did you know what I'm saying we could have but it eventually injured a gene that was responsible for replication, so it shut off. Okay.
2: Yeah, and, 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 and so it got, it got the plant into something that's called a fusion, breakage fusion cycle, and the plant did something that she totally did not expect, which the, the plant started rearranging genes to fix the broken chromosome Okay. and it took it took coding sequences from other chromosomes and repaired the chromosome got out of the cycle and started reproducing again yeah and it did That's it in dope. real time hmm. and she was she was paying close enough attention to figure out what happened now what this was was she was the first person to observe evolution actually happening
1: mm-hmm.
2: and understand genetically what was going on.
1: Yeah, she wasn't seeing just phenotypes. She was you know, big changes. She was actually seeing the genotype change resulting in a new phenotype.
0: This is just yes. a single cell, the DNA of a single cell got damaged, and this is the cell repairing itself? Yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: The this where it hit the DNA was at a an important place where it would it would not be able to continue to replicate. So,
0: but just that one cell of a large plant, though,
1: right? Yeah. It was yeah. a
0: it was a corn plant. Yeah. It was the
2: reproductive cells of a corn plant.
1: Yeah, um, we have to talk here the difference between reproductive cells and somatic cells. So. If, if I get mutation on my skin somewhere and it changes that, you know, skin cell, then, you know, skin cells have to replicate every three days, for example. Right. You get mm-hmm. new ones. So if it's injured in that, in the skin cell, then it could, if it's going to cause a problem, mutation that's dangerous, I could get skin cancer from that. But if that same process happened in testicular cells or ovarian cells and egg cells, mm-hmm. then it would... Uh, pass that on to the next generation so that's the difference between really right so if i see i can't if i get a skin cancer mutation in in a skin cell and i get that disease that doesn't mean i pass it on to my kids because it was an environmental injury in my somatic cells if i get an injury that affects my dna like that in my testicular in my sperm or in an egg then we're Mm -hmm. passing it on to the next generation so we got to be clear about that Oh, my. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. So this would be like, back to the engineering analogy, it would be like if I sent you a Microsoft Word document. It got damaged as it was going through the Internet because somebody was running an arc welder or something. You got it on the other side. It fixed it, and it changed it, and you're like, hey, Perry – Those two, like, those two paragraphs seem to be in an opposite order, and this picture moved from here over to here. And I'm like, well, I didn't do that. Hmm. Like, no, the error correction did that.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: The error correction did something that made sense.
1: That wasn't just a random process. It actually... it was a functional thing right it couldn't
2: it was missing the original information so it replaced it with something that was suitable but different
1: and it had to recognize it first yes see that's now i'm the pushback here from peasy on your debate he says well that's just random it's just random. you know what that's 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 what he he right. says about transposition, so we have to throw that well, in. Say, he also what, said that okay,
0: this you know electrical engineering computer code cannot be the same as biology code, and we're saying no. I well,
1: mean. we yeah we I don't agree with that. I don't agree with his presupposition there as a, as a biologist myself. Uh, either it's a code or it isn't. Now, sure, right. or living organisms are have some different things about it than a computer, of course. Of course. But the point is, is in information theory and in complex specific information, I don't see that much difference between. The, in fact, he said, you know, Perry says it's not an analogy; they're both code. But go ahead and tell me what you say when he says, "Yeah, it repaired itself." He admits that, but he says it's just a random. It did, you know, just does it by randomness. Well, that, so that's the yeah.
2: So here's what he thinks happened, Right. and I, I want to. I'm going to be as charitable to him as I can. Sure, <laughs> sure. Okay. okay. What he thinks happened, and probably lots of biologists think happened,
3: yeah.
2: is that the the plant mechanically needs chromosomes to look a certain way, mm-hmm. and so the cell grabs some parts and put them together, and it happened to work out.
1: Right just a random okay and
2: a lot of people believe this i think a lot of very competent biologists think that's what happened but if you understand information theory or if you've ever done programming you know that no other code works that way what like just randomly grabbing You know, well, we'll just randomly start here and we'll just randomly stop here and we'll grab whatever we find and we'll stick it in there.
1: Well, exactly. That's the thing. It's producing something. Yeah.
2: It wouldn't work in English. It wouldn't work in Chinese. It wouldn't work in HTML. It wouldn't work in a spreadsheet. It wouldn't work in a Word document. It wouldn't work in any data format that anybody has ever seen.
1: Yeah, so why do we make the assumption that it does do that in biology? All right,
0: let me... me, Well, right, like... Let let me break in here. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, let me break in real quick, Perry. If I look at it this way, if I take Windows 10 computer code, and I have it all in ones and zeros, and I go through for the next year, and every microsecond or whatever, a billion times a second, I randomly change one of the character's from a one to a zero or a zero to one, just absolutely you know random. Will I ever end up with an Apple computer? <laughs> yeah, I mean no, it, no. I mean, it, it,
2: it, and it doesn't. It doesn't matter how many steps you give it, or how many. You know whether you do it gradually or you try to do it all at once. If you're doing random stuff, it will never. Make it better. Right. All you will do is break it, and then (laughs) it doesn't work anymore,
1: and we're done. Exactly. So – Now,
2: I'm looking at this, and I'm going, there's no way that's random. But Barbara McClintock knew that too. And all you have to do is read her paper because she has a paper that came out contemporary with her Nobel Prize speech. It was published in Science. And it's like 20 pages, and she describes what she's been discovering for the last 20 years. By the way, 40 years after that corn plant experiment, she won the Nobel Prize. They they thought she was crazy at first. She kind of went underground with the whole thing. But she won a Nobel Prize. And in her Nobel Prize speech, she says, she talks about how smart, she uses the words wise and discerning (laughs) to talk, about cells responding right? to unanticipated threats.
1: That's amazing, using that language as a biologist, yeah. And she won the she Nobel Prize, ve- so. Oh, yeah. yeah. She
2: would vehemently disagree with P.Z. Myers.
1: Oh, in- interesting. I didn't there know that.
2: No que- there is no question about it. Um, now, I'll, I'll name two other people that are in the Barbara McClintock School of Thought who also – vehemently disagree with PZ Myers. One of them is Dennis Noble. Okay, he's a guy at Oxford, okay. and you can go look him up. and He's got some really great papers and videos and stuff. He's got the he's got a a video where he in in Suzhou, China, where he's addressing a a Congress of of people of Evo Devo people. Um, and his talk is called Rocking the Foundations of Evolutionary Biology where he says nearly every assumption of the modern synthesis is wrong and we have to completely revise it. Now another one is James Shapiro and he was a protege of McClintock. Shapiro discovered um, that bacteria can rearrange their DNA in 1968 Like hmm. he discovered transposition in bacteria he has the, an Order of the British Empire from the from the British Empire uh, from the Queen of England.
3: Um, where
1: is he and, teaching uh, somewhere now? Does he have an academic? Oh opponent? yeah, he's at
2: the University of Chicago.
1: Oh wow, that's a big one.
2: Very yeah. very accomplished guy, and and he's got a whole body of literature, uh, and a book called Evolution of You from the 21st Century, where he has taken McClintock's work and carried it forward. And he has a term. It's called natural genetic engineering, which is a kind of a blanket term that describes cells' ability to respond to threats in real time. And he shows that that evolution is a function of an error correction system that can jazz
0: improvise. Wow. So that... If I if I can uh, go in jump in here real quick, we uh, we're again I'm looking at starting with a wolf and ending up with a Dachshund and a Saint Bernard, and mm-hmm. from that you're saying that we ha- we can have variations in generic, so it's not it, the error correction code corrects the problem. That's right, but you're still going to end up with a modification from what we started out with.
1: But, well, it's, but it's so, a good modification. Everything. Well, I, I don't know. Let's see what he says about that.
2: Well, so, so sometimes it fixes it perfectly.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Okay. Probably most of the time. Just puts it now, back. Now, there's, yeah. there's another percentage of the time where it can't repair it. And if it can't repair it successfully, there's a mechanism that kicked, kicks in called apoptosis, which is programmed cell
3: dead. death. Yeah.
2: The cell is supposed right. to abort. Mm-hmm. Okay but there's a third category which is when do you get a change now this is not just this is not just about error correction it's also about response to shocks in the environment so for example there is a mode in replication of bacteria called SOS And it means, like, help me, help me, SOS,
3: okay? Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. And SOS is there's been a copying error. We're on the edge of having to abort the operation. We need to massively um, take a step back and repair this thing. And there's a whole, like, there's whole entire... You know, piles of scientific papers that document how this process takes place, and it's very, you know, I mean, it's like an information technology procedures manual. It's like, you know, what are all the steps in the algorithm to fix the problem? There's another one there, there's, a, there's another one which is response to heat shock, which will massively rearrange the genome. And make the cell suitable for a completely different temperature by reprogramming itself. Wow! Now, then you have other mechanisms that. So most of what I'm talking about will only produce minor genetic variations.
1: Sure. Right. More but microevolutionary are, changes. You're right, saying. Yeah,
2: yeah microevolution. Yeah. But there are two. There are two systems that make macro evolutionary changes and they are observable and they happen in real time and they're experimental and here's what they are the first one is called hybridization okay yeah now everybody's a little bit familiar with this donkey plus horse equals mule yeah that's a hybrid now donkeys and horses have 63 chromosomes. Mules have 126. And what's happened is because a horse and a mule or a horse and a donkey are slightly different from Mm -hmm. each other, you get double the chromosomes and you usually get a sterile male. Right. But you don't always get sterile and you don't always get male. And sometimes you'll get a fertile male and a fertile female, and you'll have double the chromosomes.
3: Hmm.
2: And this is very common in plants. It's common in amphibians. It's done all the time. You get a new species.
1: And that – so what we're talking about here really at the heart of your theory is evolution you don't disagree with, but what you're saying is the elegance – and the phenomenal processes in error detection and correction within DNA, albeit maybe does give rise over time in populations, is what I, where I would see it, to speciation, you know, and that's up for debate because of the, the fossil record, but at the very least microevolution and possibly macroevolutionary changes, possibly. But what you're saying is if we didn't have the elegance and, and, and uh, amazing uh, capacity within the cell to both recognize error and correct it, life would have burned out a long time ago. Because, correct. Because you wouldn't get, I mean, how would you fix these things if you didn't have redundancy and error right. detection and correction? So that sounds to me like the heart of it. Uh, yes. Am I hitting that right, or what would you say? Yes, you are. Okay. And
2: not only does it maintain, but it also adapts because – it can, you can rearrange sec, segments of DNA, you can re-express genes, you can respond to threats. Okay, so like I was, uh, the show we like to watch is called Alaska, it's like this reality show of these Alaskan people They live in the Alaskan wilderness and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's below zero outside and these guys are running around in, in tank tops and the camera crews in mittens and hats. Okay, so what's going on? Well, their body has not just physically, but it has actually genetically adapted to a cold environment. Sure. Okay? Transpositions are involved in that. Epigenetics is involved in that. And so, and so living things are constantly adapting their DNA to the environment, and then you also have mechanisms for massive, sudden changes. Hybridization is one of them. You get a totally new species in one generation, and then there's also some genetic instability that comes from that, and all of these error correction systems start kicking in and cleaning up the mess and re-stabilizing it, then there's, there's another mechanism, and it's called symbiogenesis,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it's, it's a merger acquisition between organisms or cells. So let me give you an example. Every green thing that you've ever seen, blade of grass, leaf, all of those things are green because they have chloroplasts, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody, every kid knows that, right? yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A chloroplast is a blue-green algae. Right. That's actually what it is. It's genetically almost the same as the ones you find in the pond, and they are the energy plant for the plant cell. Now, what happened... Apparently two billion years ago was a large a protozoan or something similar ingested an in algae and instead of digesting it, they formed a symbiotic hmm. relationship
3: yeah.
2: and the the chloroplast has its own DNA and it reproduces separately, but the whole thing is intertwined. Now there is a scientist um, now, this is this, what I just told you is a theory. However, this has been reproduced in the lab. There's a scientist named Quang Zhang from the University of Tennessee. He endorsed my Evolution 2.0 book
3: hmm.
2: where I described this. He put a certain kind of bacteria together with a certain kind of amoeba, hmm. and for 18 months they fought each other like cats and dogs. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it killed most of them. Right. But when it was all said and done, <laughs> they had formed a symbiotic relationship uh. where one was living inside the other. Both of uh. them had made modifications to their DNA, and they had uh, significant modifications, and they had both become so interdependent they, that neither could survive alone when he tried to separate them.
1: There you go. There's a picture of evolution happening. Yes. Now, but, that, but in real time. In real time. So let's... We're getting close on time. Uh, I hate hate it, Perry, but we're, we're getting close on time. So let's try to say we've got that picture. You talked about the protozoan under stress that cut its DNA, rearranged it to improve. So you've got mm-hmm. error detection and correction. You've got uh, improvement mechanisms built in. Now... The uh, PZ would say, oh, that's just, it just random things that happen, and they just happen to be there. But to me, I'm looking at this saying, I can't imagine how that operation would ever get off the ground, let alone be sustained, if it didn't have that built into its functionality to begin with. So if you got a computer, in other words, it'd be like looking at a computer program that has all this error detection and you say well yeah it's got errors all the time but it's fixing them like you just told me to send email well that didn't happen by happenstance i mean mm-hmm. that would be like saying well yeah we put the code in but the error detection just came <laughs> you see what i'm saying right i mean oh, right. why would it do that i mean so it would well, it would fly in the face of every kind of information that we're aware of or every kind of code if we well, were well,
2: right and, he, and and actually here's the problem with pz's position as soon as you label a behavior as random, you're at the end of the
1: road. Right. And that's that's a good point. You're You to stress. You can't go any further with that. And right. explain now, that because if, if, you say mathematically you can't prove it. It is random. Okay, so and,
2: random, random means there's no pattern. No pattern. That's yeah. what it means. So PZ is saying there is no pattern – to these rearrangements, where they happen, and so on and so forth. Or like, well, there's a pattern, to part of it, but the rest of it, there's no pattern.
3: Yeah,
1: he kind of backtracked a little bit and said, well, there's somewhat of a pattern, but it's a random pattern.
2: Okay, well, let's take anything. Let's take anything in biology, anything that cells do. As soon as you say, there's no pattern, you have erased all direct connection of cause and effect. Hmm. You you have just said, there's no way to know
1: we've gotten
2: as far as you can go, this is the end of the road.
1: That's true. I mean, would you agree with that? You can't study it if it's random. I mean, you can't, it just uh, happens. We don't know where it's going to happen. That's true. I mean, that seems to make sense logically to me. Okay.
2: There is nothing else to be learned if it you if just, that's what you believe, all you can now, do is
1: document what you're seeing, observe now, it. Harry
2: yeah. comes along, or or Barbara McClintock comes along, or anybody comes along, and they go, "No, there's a pattern. There's a reason why it did that. There is like, no, you haven't figured out the pattern. You haven't deciphered the language, but there is a language. There is an algorithm. There's a protocol. There's a set of rules. Yeah. There's a something
1: that's underlying."
2: His position is anti-scientific. My position is scientific, because mine says we can learn more.
1: Mm-hmm. And you can test now, it. it doesn't
2: matter if I believe in the flying spaghetti monster, right. or if I believe in Jesus, or I believe that the universe is God, or whatever. Right. But if I think there's more of a pattern, I'm advancing science.
0: Does, does this mean that if those people... Who are wearing uh, shirt-sleeve weather up in the Arctic, like you're talking about? If they have kids, will those kids be more susceptible to the same type of conditions? They will be acclimated? Uh,
2: I bel- we, we have some pretty good reasons to think so. And if you want to look something up, look, up, look this up. look up: epigenetics, okay. Dutch famine. I talk about it in my book Evolution 2.0, where kids born during the Dutch famine um, in World War II had different metabolism. They were conceived during the famine. Okay. And, And as far as we can tell, their parents epigenetically modified the expression of genes so that they would be able to survive in a low calorie environment
1: wow. okay. okay all right well so, we're getting close so on time to be, yeah. yeah we're getting close on time so i guess to wrap things up just uh i guess what we'd want to say is in a nutshell
0: yeah plus he's got to tell us about his book oh
1: we will yeah in a nutshell for your theory before we we t- tell us about your book and your website just give us kind of a You know, a two- or three-minute summary, and then we're going to ask you about your book, about as far as what you think uh, Evolution 2.0 has has progressed here in in origin life research.
2: Well, so I started with my argument with my brother, and I I was very much inclined, you know, to embrace the intelligent design side Mm -hmm. of the world, and yes— there is a level of design in biology, and it just doesn't happen randomly. But on the other side, what I found was there is this fascinating story on the evolution side about how cells actually make these changes. And everything that I'm talking about is experimental. Sure. We're not, we're not pointing at a bunch of fossils and making up stories. We're talking about what you can actually observe that really happens with living things, and you sequence their genomes, and you try to figure out what happened, and you can figure out what happened, that this stuff really goes on. And so I found the real interesting story was not on the hardline creationist side, and it wasn't on the hardline Darwinist side. It was straight down the middle where cells redesign themselves.
1: Sure. To, to To cause evolution, but yet it's it's got design built into it is basically what you're right you're, you use your theory as to why it's that way now I gotta ask before we stop what happened to your brother
2: so he's an agnostic at okay. this point okay he loves my book, he loves these discussions um that we were riding in the car one day, and he goes, You know Perry, thanks for not letting me become an atheist <laughs> he goes. I would have just gone from one form of fundamentalist to a different form of fundamentalist had I, you know, and and that would have been the easy path to take. Sure. Um, But he understands the subtlety of these
1: things. Sure. Well, that was an interesting story. I thought it was a really good talk and and conversation, and we made some progress on our show, bringing us closer to understanding Origin, of life issues, and uh, God I, talk. So. I didn't
0: know I know. I knew that much about biology.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, Doug. Yeah. Okay. We'll see how you do on the post-test. Oh, right? no, no, no. A lot of times it's just the terms. These oh, the c- terms. vocabulary, yeah. I know. Yeah. All right, so uh, before we let you go, Perry, just tell us where people can learn more about you, can get your book, and can find more about your work.
2: So my book is called Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. And it, it tells the story um, in a lot more uh, fullness because we really only scratch the surface on some things. And you can buy it on Amazon. It's published by Ben Bella. And um, my website is CosmicFingerprints.com. You can go to CosmicFingerprints.com. And we've got three free chapters that you can download there. And you know, I also want to mention <laughs> it's just a little thing at the end here i have a three million dollar technology prize Ah. for anybody that can um that can get a code without designing one you know that that was kind of the original realization was that you know all the other codes are designed right you know that doesn't prove dna is designed but certainly suggests that it might
1: suggest it yeah
2: and and so I decided to put together a technology prize. I formed a private equity investment group, huh. and like we really want an answer to this question. Like maybe you can get a code without a designer, but we've never seen a way. And if somebody figures this out, we want it.
1: Yeah, give them three million bucks, and yeah, right. that's fascinating. Okay, well here, there you go, audience. There's your so there's
2: your... A, there's a page on that on the website okay. too, and, and right. some people will find that very interesting.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, we really appreciate you being here and giving us your time. I know you're very busy and taking time out today to, to talk with us, Perry. And Well, uh, I
2: I loved the double geek and stereo effect.
1: <laughs> you got it. That a was little. really fun. Yeah, and – Hey, would you be willing maybe to come back another time? Because I know we didn't get deep enough into some of these. Maybe we could talk about some other specifics and more of your book. Oh yeah, another time.
2: There's entire departments that we have overlooked yeah. in this conversation. <laughs> yeah. So Well, we'll, we'll uh, get by you by back.
1: We'll get you back in a few months. Thank you so much, Perry. Have a good day. It's been great. All right. Thank you, Perry. Thank. Okay, so Doug that was uh Perry Marshall and talking about Evolution 2.0. Okay, all right. So I'm trying to figure out exactly where we're
0: standing here with this. As far as I understand, this is a uh correction matter that happens uh to the sale to, cell, cell. to yeah. the sale. So if I was we talked about the Trinity site which is the world's first uh, atomic explosion happened out in New Mexico. And if you was to walk out there and get irradiated, it would damage some of your cells. Mm-hmm. And from what I'm gathering what he is proposing is that it would fix those cells and you wouldn't have tumors all of your body. Yeah,
1: well, it could. and I mean, you know, certainly people get cancer, and one of the ways is mutagenesis. You know, mutations or oncogenes get turned on, okay? I could do a whole show on how cancer develops. We've done one. We've done one, right. But oncogenesis, well, how those oncogenes get turned on is a mutation happens, and it changes the code, and now a gene that wasn't uh, augmented or turned on turns on and won't turn off, right? Right. So that's an example of how you get cancer cells. Well, he's saying that, you know, transposition is the word. Transposition is the name of this process where cells, you know, inside a cell, you've got this DNA code, and it gets broken in an area that's critical for replicating or something. And he's saying now you got these two bare ends of DNA. They will hook back together, but not only will they hook back they will actually fix the sequence that was there, is what he's saying. So you'll bring these two DNA in together, fix the sequence, and now it goes back like it was before, so you'd have no injury. right? So right. He's a, an example would be if you were reading a book, and on page 91 you ripped it out. And now the next person that reads it is on page 90, and they go, wait a minute, they can't go from 90 to 92, they don't know what happened. That's what I'm saying. DNA is a code, just like the English language, and he's saying it will pull those ends together and put those bases back in and fix the code so it recognizes it and patches it and fixes it. And his argument is that's an elegant system to maintain an information code, and you don't see that unless you have a mind that designed it. That's the, that's the point.
0: All right, first of all, there's no way that's randomness that something randomly fix that and because, i don't think so because uh, it is what you're saying is almost identical to how a cell phone works i mean okay. you, a cell phone takes a packet of information and it puts it through a screen and after it goes through the screen you end up with two packets of information right okay. let's say two 8-bit words you send those two 8-bit words through a, through the phone line, it gets to the next cell phone tower or the next station or wherever mm-hmm. it's going to stop, and it looks at it and says, puts it through the same the, the same word through the same screen. It says, okay, does this word match that word? If it does, the information is the same, and it, and it just passes the information on. If the information is different, it says there's something wrong here,
1: and it stops. You need to send the information again. Okay. So what you're describing there is error detection and then repair of it because you got to resend it and resend it correctly. So Perry's saying he's seeing this inside the cell and saying, wait a minute, that looks very similar to – because he's an electrical engineer. So he's just like you. He sees that and goes, now, wait a minute. I've seen this before. But it's in information, and it's a code that's built into the information. So he's saying that cell can't be doing that just randomly now. He says, of course, PZ Myers and push back and say, oh, it's just random. It just does it. And we have no way. Well, he says that's a conversation stopper.
0: Well, here you go. Because you
1: can't test randomness.
0: Well, here you go, PZ. Here's a cell
1: phone. Make, don't, take, that, <laughs> take that part out. Take that part out. And see how well see your phone works. And see, that's the problem. <laughs> We've we got two different issues going on here. We've got the process of macroevolution, population genetics. Which happen because changes occur, and if you get something better, that survives into the next generation. And it eventually, could. over it could, and over long periods of time, you'll see Im- improvements, you know, in that, right. in that gene, in that particular species. Whether or not we go one species to another, that's another question. But the point being, you get microevolution, absolutely. Improvements, we see that. Is this causing that, or is that happening through randomness? I think part of it could be random. It could be. You I, could I, have a mutation that made this something is, better. But this is different.
0: This is different. This is to fix in your body so that you can last longer than a few years,
1: so you don't die. Right. Yeah. And so my my point on this, Doug, is let's think back about DNA and say, well, it's kind of it's a code, and its information is kind of fragile. I mean, you talked about if if I change one bit in this computer. Right. It will not work. If one, I take a zero one code and I take one thing and switch it, one thing
0: in the computer, in this in the program, that's recording, yeah. this uh, recording, this message, right. right?
1: It'll it'll stop. It'll stop. It's got to it's be crashed. just like that. Okay. Now the DNA is also information, and it's running our body. It's giving. It's telling us how to make proteins and enzymes and everything. It's the it's the computer code for our body. If we change it, then if it's changed in an area that's important, which we didn't get to talk about junk DNA, we'll have to have him back again well, to talk about that. And you that. have
0: junk code as well. So. And you got
1: junk code, but there's, there's parts of DNA we don't know what it does. Maybe it's not important. Maybe it is. We don't know. Some people think it actually is, but I'm sure there's are some areas that are not. But let's say you hit an area that's important. If you don't fix that, the cell's going to die. You get right. apoptosis. Or you're going to get a cancer. You're going to get a mutation and cause a malignancy or something. So he's saying transposition is a, an elegant system to fix that. And I think I think he's got something. Now, I understand the biological side. They'll just say, nah, it's just a random process. You know, there are certain sequences that it tends to repeat, but it's random. I don't know. I, I, I say that system looks like it was put there for a reason so that we could survive.
0: Well, you know I, I think... Many, uh, many shows ago, I asked you, or you were telling the story about your DNA, your cell here knows that this is my finger. Right. And the cell here knows that this is my arm and this knows that it's my hair. It's differentiated,
1: yeah. But we don't know that process. Don't know how it gets there. No, an interesting thing, every one of those cells started from the same cell. From the same cell. So it reproduced, and then at some point it had to differentiate, yes. I mean, this is 2016, and we don't
0: know the fundamental...
1: We don't know how the cell turns on the code to change to a liver cell and a kidney cell and a brain cell. We do not know that answer. We know that it happens. We watch it, but somehow that cell is turning on switches and turning off switches. See, there's another process see that sounds an awful lot like how, that's oh, that's a process to- totally randomness totally <laughs> randomness. well why wouldn't you end up getting a liver up here and a kidney i mean how yeah, do, you know yeah i mean that's a good you... point how do you do we should do a show on cell differentiation talk about the process i know that it's not understood because i teach it i mean if if not i'm teaching it wrong you know right i, I explain the process and i can show it but i, I don't know how it happens you know uh, I tell you another one like that. Yeah, real you're quick.
0: right. If if it ever failed by randomness, have, you'll yeah. have a heart on your exactly. On your teeth. You'd have
1: cells growing <laughs> in places they don't. You know, we occasionally see that in tumors and teratomas. You know, I, like I tell you, I've pulled, taken out ovaries before that had teeth, hair, brain cells. Those are teratomas, but those are strange omas. You know, those are right. bizarre tumors. But no, it doesn't happen often. I mean, those are very rare. Um, Now, you know, the process of uh, that the placenta, for example, knows to attach, in other words, those cells, those trophoblast cells come up in an embryo, they attach to the uterus and they form a relationship with that uterus and they grow just deep enough into it so that you can exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide and nutrients, but it will not grow past that. Why doesn't it just keep growing through the wall? Well, if it does, on rare occasion it'll do that. We call it placenta accreta. But 99% of the time, it knows to stop. And I never forget when I learned that in my residency. I said, well, how does that placenta know to attach there and grow in just that far? Why doesn't it keep growing? Why doesn't it keep invading? I mean, it stops. Something stops it from doing that. And I remember my professor looked at me and said, you asked too many questions <laughs> and i said well i'm curious and he said honestly we have no idea i said you don't know and he said nobody knows that and he said further whenever the baby's born the the placenta will stay attached to that uterus the whole nine months unless they have an abruption it's torn apart but otherwise it stays attached feeds the baby and do you know as soon as that baby's born and you cut the cord it releases I mean, you know, we don't know how that happens. We have no idea how that knows to release itself. There are all kinds of things like that in medicine that we just have to look at and say, you know, I I just don't know. I don't know how it's elegant. When to attach, when to uh, grow, how far, and when to detach. And it'll happen within 30 minutes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) You don't believe me? <laughs> That's just Okay. It, it, I believe you. I no, believe. you read about it. I mean it'll it you talk about placental uh delivery of the placenta is the, you know third stage of labor. You let that, you know, placenta come out and it you can't rip it out. If you rip it out, half of it stays in and you gotta retain placenta, you got an infection, you gotta do a D and C. I mean you can't rip it out. You have to wait until it gives, and when it gives, it comes out. But my question is, why didn't it do that three months ago? Well, it's probably some kind of hormonal mechanism. But again, how does it know to secrete the – see what I'm saying? Oh my the goodness. elegance involved in that system, and nobody knows. Nobody knows the answer to that. I've never been able to find anybody. And I'm an OBGYN. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I've had 5, all the training babies. in it. I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how it happens, but I, but I know that it does. So once again, let's just end it this way. I am continually amazed by the complexity and the specificity in the design that we see both in the universe and in humanity, and in and in human nature, and in the, in the physiology and biology. So, once again, Perry brought us an, an interesting look. I don't know that I agree with everything he said, but I uh, I don't I can't think of anything I disagree with. Just don't know all of it, but. Uh, I thought, it, I thought he did a good job presenting it, and I uh, hope people will read his book, Evolution 2.0. All right, so this is God Talk, a program where science, theology, and religion are mixed up, mingled, and dissected. And this is God Talk, where we faithfully
0: examine science and reasonably examine faith. Thank you for listening.
1: Please visit our website at
0: godtalk.com. Our audio files can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other podcast platforms. You can find all of our God Talk videos by searching Dr. Andy and Doug on YouTube. Please visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash Dr. Andy and Doug. Thank you for listening.